as we've noted already, how blessed it is that God has allowed us to assemble this morning, this third Sunday in June 2015, to come together for the express purpose of adoring and honoring and magnifying His name and His cause and His kingdom. And as is often the case, not only are we well represented by the membership of the congregation, but many visitors have come our way today. We want you to know how thankful we are that you're here. And certainly we invite you to come back and be with us at any time you might have the opportunity to do that. As we all know, I'm sure, and Gary mentioned earlier during the announcements, today's Father's Day, and we do want to wish each of the fathers a very happy and delightful day. And in fact, I selected, as you can probably tell, a lesson that I thought would be beneficial to all of us as we think about fatherhood. I know that each of us who are human fathers, of course, realize the, the frailties and the decisions that come in life. But God's Word has so many words of encouragement and so many words of instruction and direction. And I'd like to invite you to think with me today about the father of the prodigal son. You may want to be turning to Luke the 15th chapter as we shall look at a few of the features and attributes of that father as they're listed there for us. By way of introduction, you may have noticed on this next slide, of course, that the lesson text, or at least that passage found in Psalm 103 verse 13, and I would ask you to notice, like as a father pitieth his children... Even so, the Lord pitieth those that fear Him. There you may notice that even earthly fathers extend what the King James Version calls pity upon His children. And that word pity has to do with compassion. It has to do with care. All of us as fathers, we love our children and we're concerned about them and we want the best for them. In that very same way, God wants the best for all of us. But that best, of course, requires we live after His Word and we follow His teachings and dictates, for therein is ultimately the means of life. Didn't Jesus say in John 6, 63, The words that I say unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. Today, as we look into the blessed law of liberty, maybe the very bottom statement on that slide, the father of the prodigal son. Now, I would suggest that we devote at least the next element of the lesson this morning to thinking at least in a quick fashion about that parable our Savior taught. It is a very familiar parable, maybe one of the most familiar of all of them, but yet I've tried to highlight some of the principal features of it before we then cast the spotlight upon the father of that prodigal son. I realize often we think more about the son and sometimes even the older brother, but might we say that there's much said about the father in that parable. A certain man had two sons. And we remember that one of them, the younger of the two, desired his part of the inheritance. And so he asked his father for that portion that belonged to him, and the father granted his request. And the, young, the younger son, it says, rather quickly prepared his things and took a journey into a far country. And there the text informs us that he wasted his substance in riotous living. He frivolously and scandalously spent it. He, in fact, wasted it as the inspired scriptures tell us. In fact, you might keep in mind that that word prodigal basically means wasteful. When you and I think about the parable of the prodigal son, it's the parable of the wasteful son. This younger son, sure enough, went off and wasted that substance. I would point out that that word riotous, it literally means reckless, it has to do with that which is wasteful. 
And finally, you'll notice that word waste means to squander. Didn't the younger son appreciate the years of labor and effort perhaps the father had invested in order to make that available? Did he not care of all the interest that had gone into it? And yet he wasted it in the following way. I would ask you to notice a bit later in the chapter, the older brother suggests that maybe the younger son had even been with some prostitutes. Whether that was ultimately the truth or not, it was the older brother's assertion. Sad to think about the wasting of that which the father had made available in a way like this. Please look on to what follows. The time came that the funds that the younger son had were all spent. Money doesn't go very far as we typically many realize. And here as this younger son was spending well beyond his means and doing so in a reckless fashion, he soon found himself in want. He was in a far country and all those at the father's house, of course, weren't there. It quickly informs us that he joined himself to a citizen of that country perhaps looking for an opportunity to make a way for himself, and that citizen asked him to go feed pigs. All of us realize that for a Jew, such a thing was very, very low, exceedingly so. And the text even informs us that he was so hungry, he even thought about eating the husks with the pigs. Oh, how far the younger son had fallen. Of course, when all was well with him in his father's house, think about the blessings and the provision he enjoyed on a daily basis. And now, having left the father's house, look where he found himself. The parable goes onward. The text informs us he did come to himself. Verses 24 and following. He came to himself and he made a determination. He said, even the servants in my father's house have it better than this. He made a resolve, I will go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned in thy sight and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. He had a tremendous determination. He was happy to basically occupy the place of a servant in his father's house. But he did prepare himself and embarked on that journey from the far country back to the house. You and I will remember as the slide closes, the father saw him from a distance. The father was eager for his return and very enthusiastic about it. He ran to him and hugged him, kissed him, so happy that he was back. The son followed through with his intent. He made his pronouncement, I've sinned in thy sight. I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father would hear nothing of that. Kill the fatted calf, put the ring on his finger. My son that was dead is alive again. My son that was dead is now back with me and alive. The father with such excitement, such provision, and such thankfulness for the safe return of his son. Doesn't it highlight maybe the bottom statement? The other personality in that parable was, of course, the older son. He wasn't so excited. We well remember that he, in fact, was a bit jealous The younger son had come back and the older brother wouldn't even come in and enjoy the celebration and the festivities that had been prepared. Finally, we notice the father goes out to talk to the older brother, speaking with him about the nature of where the younger son was, namely he was back home. The older brother said, Dad, 
you never gave me a kid that I might enjoy it with my friends. And now this, your son, has come back home from the kind of life he was living and you've done this for him. That did highlight that this father had a number of features in which he interacted not only with the older but with the younger son. That is a brief recollection of the major features of the parable. But what about that older father? What about the father, I should say? Let's draw a few lessons that all of us as fathers can utilize to help ourselves. I might suggest many of these things can be very appropriate even to ladies as well. But specifically, as you think about a father, lesson number one. It would seem to me vital to note that the father listened to the sons. Not only the younger one, but the older one too. At the very outset of the parable, the younger son came to the father and said, Give me that which is my inheritance. I've often wondered that as the father heard that, no doubt he may through the years of experience in terms of the behavior, the conduct, and the lifestyle of that younger son, maybe he had a sense that the younger son would waste it. Maybe he had a sense the younger son would not spend it as wisely as he could have. Maybe he had a sense of the kind of heart that the younger son had with a bent toward reckless living and squandering things. Be that as it may, the dad listened. May we suggest that a good father will listen to his children. There are times they have concerns and troubles and things they don't understand. After all... A dad is one who has years of experience, not only in those days prior to the time he married and had children, but even since that time, and he's learned much. Life is a tremendous experiential thing in that regard, isn't it? But a father then will listen. He understands that that youngster doesn't understand all he does, and he understands that youngster doesn't know all the things that he knows. He listens. May I suggest to you that as you look at that consideration of the listening character of the father, did you notice even the older brother, the dad listened to him too. He actually went out to talk to the older brother again when that older brother would not come in and enjoy the celebration. And dad not only talked with him, he heard what the older brother had to say. Look at some verses that challenge all of us. We understand how often the Bible reminds us that a good father will listen. In Proverbs 18, verse 13, as well as Proverbs 15, 28, even in the heart of the Old Testament, comments to the effect of one who is wise, and that certainly includes a godly father, but one who is wise will not answer too hastily and too quickly. He will listen with care. He will ponder and then speak in an appropriate fashion. To be a good listener, isn't that often a very vital and important thing? And surely a good father will do that. Not only that, look at a second lesson. Not only was this father one who listened, may I suggest there was an uncompromising character to this man. You might ask, what's meant by that? Well, may I ask, perhaps it follows from that observation you and I made just a moment ago. When the younger son asked for his portion of the inheritance, you'll notice that typically the ideas of life don't just pop up immediately. This father had witnessed the behavior of this son for years. 
And after all, he had advanced to the age where he could rightly ask for his part of the inheritance and he could go off in a far country. The younger son wasn't just a seven or eight-year-old boy at this point. The father had watched him through 15, 20, 25 years, and he knew the kind of person that he was. He no doubt had a sense that all was not going to be well with his usage of all this money. But did you ever notice, almost immediately, what did the younger son do with it? He packed his bags and off to the far country he went, and there the text informs us he pursued reckless, wasteful living, prodigality. You'll notice, though, what the younger son never did while he was home. There's a reason for that. If you're going to live recklessly, you can't do it in Dad's house. He had to go off somewhere else to a far country for that. Maybe that's something you and I could note about the uncompromising character of Dad. A godly father will demand that his house remain close to the Lord. And he'll remand that what takes place in his house will be in keeping with the Word of God. And that will not be open for compromise. And that will not be open for negotiation. Son, if that's what you want to do, you're not doing it here. Maybe that's why the younger boy had to go to the far country. An uncompromising godly father. There are some principles espoused in the Word of God, aren't there? And they cannot be cast aside if one is to remain in the good graces of God. The uncompromising character, you'll notice, leads us to appreciate this. All of us know that we can be readily influenced by that which goes on about us. Our friends, our neighbors, and maybe especially youth are open critically to that kind of influence. Sometimes that young person, but dad, everybody else is doing it. I'd like to too. Son, you won't do that in this house. Although others may be doing it, that's not pleasing to God. And His Word does not condone such a thing, and I and love for you will not permit you to do it as long as you're under my roof. Sometimes the love of a father will demand that kind of statement, won't it? The father here was an uncompromising man. He loved his son, but some things are just not going to be done here. Can't you and I be thankful for godly fathers? Men who appreciate the teaching of the Word of God and who demand that not only as near as they can in their lives, but in those whom they can influence, their wife and their children, they too will appreciate the blessed glory of God and they'll strive to remain in harmony with it and to ensure that others appreciate it too. When you think about Job in the Old Testament, in the first five verses of the opening chapter of that book, we remember here was a man, the greatest man in the East, the Scriptures inform us, greatly blessed physically. But maybe one of the matters that stands out to us about Job is, what did he do with respect to his children? Each and every day he was concerned about their spiritual well-being. And he even, in fact, underwent various offerings and sacrifices for them on their behalf. Here was a man who was keenly interested in his children. He loved them and wanted things to be well with them spiritually. A godly father today still, of course, feels principally the same way. You'll notice these bottom statements. We understand in 1 Timothy 4 how that 
this interesting feature reminds us of the peril of youth. Young people often aren't grounded the way you and I as older ones are. They can be motivated and influenced. No wonder Paul admonished Timothy, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in verity. That admonition to be wise in your youth. Sadly, this prodigal son here wasn't too wise. But it does remind us of the uncompromising nature of the father. As you come to this next slide with me, may I ask that we each remember that there are many things that God demands that we be uncompromising with respect to. Colossians 1.22 and Titus 2.12 inform us that in that house, coupled with Isaiah 38 and 2 John 4, that father is the spiritual leader, has been given by God. That particular attribute in dads, when our children think about God, their first impression of a father is you and me. And over the course of time, we shall hope they shall learn about the ultimate father of all, God in heaven, and when they learn about that Father, will we at least bear before them examples reminding them of what the great God in heaven is like? I'm not suggesting that we're as perfect as He and as complete in every way as He. But their first impression of fatherhood is us. May we strive to set before them the morals and the ethics and the truth of God so that their heart will be open to the things of God when they reach that age. Point number three, not only was that father one who listened and one who was uncompromising, notice his provision, his provision. It was the case that younger son asked for his part of the inheritance and the father gave it to him. I suspect that the father had some very critical talks with him. Now son, you understand how significant it is to use this wisely, and I charge that you will do it. I suspect that happened. The Word of God doesn't say, so we can't read too much into that. But suffice it to say, the Father still provided. He still loved that Son and made sure that the provision of that which was rightfully coming to Him was made available to Him. Doesn't that speak volumes about the provision of our Heavenly Father but doesn't it charge you and me as fathers, earthly fathers, with the duty of providing? In 1 Timothy 5, verse number 8, Paul, in fact, wrote a very directive statement that anybody that won't provide for his own has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Fathers, if we don't ensure that our families have the food that they need and the clothing that they need and the other physical things of life, we have not carried out our obligations according to the Bible. And therefore it is that we should, of course, take seriously that charge given to us to ensure that provision for them. Maybe that's highlighted in language like this. Isn't it interesting in Colossians 4.1, that there is appropriate provision even on the part of those who may not be family members. That verse, among others, speaks a great deal about employers. You and I who are employers, many men own a company, or they in fact as a father are also in another part of their phase of their life, they are an employer. The Bible demands that we be just and equitable even to our employees.
you pay them justly. You pay them that which is equal and equitable. You pay them that which is right. Maybe many of us still think about a godly father that does that. A man who treated his employees rightly. He was concerned about their welfare and made sure that that which he made available to them was equitable and just. The Bible teaches us all of those things. And we see in part this even in relation to the father of the prodigal son. Even that younger boy in the far country, remember the statement he made? The servants in my father's house have it better than this. You see, he even knew my dad will treat his employees rightly. He'll make sure they're taken care of. And he'll make sure that what they have agreed to him with, he will respond in turn. May you and I be that just and honest and equitable as well. You'll notice maybe one final thing. This father... As he provided, did you notice? Not only did he make promise of providing for that older son, he already gave the younger son his. This old, this father was not a partial man. And by that I mean he didn't show partiality. Some of the greatest evils, it would seem, that can ever develop into the minds of youngsters are when that youngster begins to feel like dad and mom are showing favoritism. Brother or sister, they like them better than me. They treat them better than me. This father didn't do that. Both boys were in fact equally regarded relative to the inheritance to which they had rightful opportunity. Paul admonished all of us in 1 Timothy 5.21, Show no partiality. Fathers, may I encourage all of us, don't show favoritism to your children. I realize that their temperaments are different. The degree of their personalities differ, but nonetheless, we must not show favoritism relative to liking one better than others or at least showing more favoritism money-wise or otherwise to one. They're both my children or your children, and they both must be appreciated and loved and brought to recognize the fullness of God's provision. And if it's true that our God does not show partiality, remember He is no respecter of persons, Romans 2.11. Doesn't that highlight that He in fact is one that you and I should seek to consider so highly ourselves? This third lesson, provision, brings us to number four. What else is true about this Father? I would invite you to notice that in the next case, what a compassionate man that He was. Please remember with me that text we noted earlier in Psalm 103, verse 13. A father pitieth his children, and that word means to have compassion. We'll look back to this parable with me. You'll notice that when the younger son returned, he returned with all the fortitude of desiring to be nothing more than a servant in his father's house. And yet, the father would not even so much as allow that to be a thought in his mind. He had compassion on the son. He didn't in any way say, Son, you didn't make any mistakes. He didn't in any way assert that all was perfect, but he was compassionate. He was ready to receive back home the one that had left. He was ready, in fact, to invite him with open arms. I've tried to write it in the following way. As he received back that son who was rather penitent, as he received back that son who was much wiser than he had been when he left, 
he was able to make this statement. The father considered him dead before. My son who was dead is now alive again. Note verse 24. That son, you see, in the far country was where he ought not to have been. He was where he didn't need to be. And he was doing what he needed not to have done. The father, of course, wanted him home where he could be provided for and he could, in fact, provide for himself the things of the family. Maybe one last statement. Aren't we reminded all throughout the Scriptures how that as earthly fathers, we ought to be like that as well. Fathers, your children are not going to be perfect, just like you and I aren't perfect. Your sons and your daughters, they're going to make errors in judgment. They're going to make decisions that are not in keeping with what you would prefer them to make. They're going to choose arenas and paths in life that are not going to be your selection. And quite frankly, it will turn out in many cases that they will come to realize the mistakes. But perhaps in that moment of youth, they can only see what appears to be the grand reward and that which they want. But when they come to their senses... And when they recognize the error in their way, may you and I be compassionate. May we be individuals who will not say, I told you so, but who will be quick to say, I'm glad that it's all better now. If I can help you in any way, if I can be of one to help pray for you or help you fix up these matters in your life, I'll try. Just let me know how I can help. This father ran to meet the son. That's a rather interesting thing to visualize, isn't it? As this father was waiting, no doubt, rather patiently, hopeful that the son would return. And yet from a distance he espied the son coming and it was the father who ran to him. He didn't wait for the boy to get to the front porch, if you please. He ran to meet him. May you and I have that degree of heartfelt compassion and concern for our own families and our children too. I would ask you to notice in 1 Thessalonians 2.11 the God in heaven is described as a God of compassion. He extends mercy and love to all of us. May we at least draw a parallel when a Christian makes errors in his or her life like Simon did in Acts the 8th chapter and he too walks away from the faith. Doesn't God eagerly wait for him to return? Doesn't God eagerly hope that He will? Sure He does. And He does so waiting with open arms for you and me to come to our senses too. A father, a godly father is then one who is compassionate. All of these attributes that we've seen so far maybe lead us to number five. This father was a father of forgiveness as well. When the son returned, that younger son who had wasted what he had been given who had acted with such recklessness, who had squandered what his father had provided him. When the younger boy came back, did you notice the father never asked, how much of the money do you still have? Do you have any of it? No words like that ever came out of the mouth of the father. Maybe later as the son settled back into the house, maybe they had many powerful conversations and maybe the father sought opportunity to instill within the youngster even greater wisdom and development. But can't we see that there was forgiveness on the part of the father? That forgiveness you and I might develop like this. 
I would think it at least somewhat tempting for many that with all the money that perhaps the father had worked so many years to accumulate and to see the son waste it so quickly, to see him squander it so swiftly, maybe there'd been a, a temptation to hold a grudge against the younger boy. And maybe 10 or 15, 20 years down the road, do you remember, son, I gave you the inheritance and you wasted it. One of the things that we as fathers, of course, must strive to do, we don't hold grudges against our children. We're saddened when they do choose courses of life that involve mistakes and ungodly behavior. But when they come to their senses and we aid them or encourage them, may we not hold perpetual grudges over them. What if God held grudges against you and me? What if those sins you and I committed were such that God always remembered them? Maybe the top of this slide will take us to this interesting text. In Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You and I were miserable sinners at one point. We were alienated from God, Romans 5, 8. We were distanced from Him, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. And yet, when we chose to embark on that journey to His side, He openly welcomed us, forgave us of any and all sins that formerly had clouded our path. That is amazing. What a forgiving God we have. You and I as earthly fathers ought to strive, as all of us do, to be forgiving didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, verses 14 and following, that God won't forgive us if we won't forgive those who ask us to forgive them? When your son or mine, or your daughter or mine, says, Dad, I made a mistake and I'd like you to forgive me. If we withhold that forgiveness, we shouldn't expect God to forgive us. Maybe that brings us to that parable Jesus taught in Matthew 18. Beginning in verse 21 of that chapter, the Lord spoke about a scene in forgiveness. You well remember it. There was, of course, an individual who himself owed more than he could ever pay. And yet the king forgave him. But later, we remember in that very same parable, the one who had been forgiven, there was another gentleman that owed him a little bitty amount. That man would not forgive the other. You remember how that parable ultimately ended. The king heard of what the servant had done. The king said, I forgave you, but you wouldn't forgive your, your friend or your fellow. I tell you what, you'll be cast into prison. You've paid everything. The king was angry because the servant wouldn't do the same thing to his friend that the king had done to him. That parable ends with Jesus saying, Go and do thou likewise. All of us are to have forgiving spirits. Maybe that forgiveness brings us to the sixth and final point of the lesson today. What else might we say about that father of the prodigal son? We've studied many things about him already and how very encouraging in many ways they have been. What might we say about the teaching aspect of that father? A father will be a dutiful teacher. The Old Testament demanded it. Among those fathers of ancient Israel, you teach your son. 
when he rises up in the morning, when he goes to bed at night, throughout the duration of the day, when those opportunities arise, you implant in his mind the features of the truth of God. Do you notice that there's some features in this? This father, he taught many things to the younger boy. We've studied many of them this morning. He also taught many things to the older son. Those are the closing verses of the parable. You and I should appreciate that it's God's plan that there be much teaching throughout life. Parents, as they teach their children, Ephesians 6 verse 4, Colossians 3 verses 20 and 21. When all that teaching takes place, doesn't it highlight in us the very following remarks? This matter of teaching perhaps brings us to the gospel call of invitation. The gospel is not obeyed just by intent. The gospel is not obeyed simply by thinking about it. This father asserted that there are things to be done. And it's God, our God in heaven, who as the loving and faithful father says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. And his commandments are not grievous. 1 John 5, verse 3. Those commandments, in fact, touch everything from our initial obedience to what is involved in rightful and proper worship. Today, what about your disposition of heart and mind? To the fathers in the audience, I'd say, may we learn a great deal from this father of the prodigal son. May we have many of the attributes that he had. May we say, though, as we close the lesson, if there's one or more in the audience that's not a member of the kingdom of God not a member of the church of our Lord, not one that He bought with His blood. He did say, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Our blessed Savior built one institution. That's what He said. Are you a member of the one described thoroughly, fully, and completely in the New Testament? If you are, may you live faithfully throughout life. If you aren't, why not today come to the Father in heaven who has all these attributes with perfectness? And in closing the lesson then, the invitation is yours. I hope all of us, myself included, can be a father who is compassionate and who listens and who's forgiving and who's a right teacher and one who appreciates the thoroughness of provision. May we also say, though if you aren't, and all of us can seek for greater maturity... If you need to make a public response to the gospel invitation today by returning to your first love, Jesus will gladly welcome you back home. In fact, we notice as an alien sinner, you must believe in Jesus and repent of your sins and you must confess and be baptized. That's commanded in Mark 16, 16. If you though have taken care of those needs, but in that day and time since you haven't been faithful, come back to your first love. The God in heaven, just like these things here, illustrates how much He loves and wants you to come to His side. If we could be of assistance by praying for one who is an erring child of God, we'd be delighted to do that too. Just come and confess those errors and those sins, and God will be happy to hear the prayer of penitent brethren on your behalf. Today, if we could be of help to anybody in the audience, we invite you to come even as God does. While together we stand and while we sing.